You are listening to Demise of the podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast, where I discuss writing specifically today, Brett Easton Ellis's writing, as we get into a series on Lunar Park. Now, if you were listening to last week's podcast and you were expecting me to read more Stephen King, well, I decided to spare you and I the displeasure. And by displeasure, I mean my reaction to his writing. Now, I have very good memories of reading the book Different Seasons, which is his novella collection that has uh, the Shawshank Redemption novella in it. Well, for one thing, I didn't want to spoil that for myself, but also I feel as though the last two episodes, though they were intended as comedic, are a bit unfair to not Stephen King, but to Stephen King fans. And I don't really want to alienate a bunch of people. It's not that I'm, you know, not standing behind my opinions. I still think that Carrie is not a very well-written novel and that The Shining is very boring in the beginning and that Rage is very bad. Okay, that's three novels that I critiqued. And there's nothing wrong with critique. I have a master's and a bachelor's degree in English. Critique is what I do. However, there are limitations on a human level. And nobody likes to hear someone pull apart what they love. And I don't want the podcast to be pushed too far into that territory. Part of the reason why I started reading other writers on this podcast is to talk about good writing, what I consider to be good writing. And Brady Sinellis is my favorite author. And I, as I discovered last night, have not covered a Brett Easton Ellis novel since December of 2020. That's when I did the American Psycho series. So, Fast forward about three years later, and I'm finally covering Lunar Park, which is kind of his Stephen King novel, in a sense. He said that it was inspired by Stephen King's writing, even though it's very much a British and Ellis novel. And I think it's his best novel since American Psycho. It's his best book since American Psycho. Between American Psycho and Lunar Park, he released two books. One was a novel, and one was a short story collection, The Informers. I didn't like The Informers very much, and I very much do not like Glamorama, which is funny because Ellis considers it his best book. But I'm writing my sixth novel right now and thinking a lot about literary criticism. And literary criticism is very important. But the thing is is that there's a difference between creator and critic. And what people need to realize is that when someone writes a book, that's not a small feat. They are showing you, no matter how minuscule, a piece of their soul. And I was writing about this in my book last night because I'm writing from the perspective of a journalist who does not read fiction anymore. And he talks about how he doesn't want to waste his time doing it because he doesn't enjoy it anymore. And why would he bother 
loathing something that someone else put a lot of their time and effort into. You know, a lot of authors like to pick on Stephanie Meyer or E.L. James, and there's plenty to pick on. But, you know, what they accomplished is obviously nothing short of a miracle in terms of getting people to read and also having a a greater literary discussion. They incited a lot of avarice in academia and the bitter authors who became professors. (laughs) I know because I sat in class with them as they... uh, ranted against those authors. Um, I was in a fiction writing course and also a screenwriting course with a professor who went to Harvard, who was an editor on the National Lampoon, or the Harvard Lampoon, rather. And she was obviously a talented writer, but she was very, very bitter about how E.L. James was so successful. I think a lot of authors are bitter about that. But the thing is, is that these writers, you know, we might think they suck. They mean something to someone. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't critique them. But I also think it's important to take a step back. And myself in particular... Because, you know, when I wrote Greenskin, um, you know, that's my favorite novel I've ever written. I have no regrets about that novel. But obviously it wasn't as, as successful in terms of sales as Demise of the Trinity. Now, to call myself an Amazon best-selling author is not a big deal. And I don't call myself an Amazon best author, best-selling author. I just am, because it happens to a lot of people. It's not a big deal. However, we always hope, even though we know that it won't be, we always hope that it's very successful. That we'll somehow make the lightning strike. It'll hit the zeitgeist, and it'll be popular. It'll sell thousands of copies and la-di-da. Of course, you know, for most of us, that doesn't happen. So for me to critique Stephen King is no big deal. He doesn't know I exist. He's never going to listen to this podcast. And I doubt very much that anyone who knows him will listen to the podcast. However, you know, I'm probably shitting on something that someone loves. And I'm not necessarily against that. However... I can only do it so much. You know, I did two episodes for Piers Anthony, an author that I used to love, just like Stephen King. So it does also come from a place of love. You know, I still have affection for Stephen King and Piers Anthony. The only author that I can think of off the top of my head that I covered on here for a one-off episode was Colleen Hoover. I don't like Colleen Hoover. But my wife enjoys reading her stuff, even though she she acknowledges that she believes that these are bad books. That's not why she reads them. There's a certain amount of pretentiousness in writing. There's a certain amount of pretentiousness in reading. Now, I'm not gatekeeping reading and writing. Don't get me wrong. However, when someone picks up a book like The Shining, 
and it has chapter upon chapter upon chapter of not advancing the plot, just a bunch of details and stuff that some people really enjoy reading. That has a bit of self-indulgence to it for both the author and the, the reader. It's almost pornographic the way that some readers and authors engage in this sort of mutual gratification where the author gets to write for pages and pages and pages and say very little, but they have an audience that will eat it right up. A great example of this is The Shards by Brett Easton Ellis, a novel that he originally wrote for his podcast. And having read the book and also listened to the podcast, I actually think it's best experienced by listening to his podcast. So uh, you can go listen to The Shards uh, practically for free. You pay a minuscule amount and you have access to his podcast forever, all the episodes, and then you know, go find the episodes where he read The Shards. It's quite a listen, but it's a different experience than reading that book. Uh, I imagine that what I wrote for my podcast specifically is different than actually reading it. I wouldn't know because I can't experience my writing the same way that readers do. But when I read Lunar Park, I was in college and I was just grateful that Ellis had written another great novel. Now, I don't know if I would still consider it great because I've only read it twice and we are coming back to it now in 2023 when I'm in my 30s. But I remember the first chapter very well. I remember other bits and pieces of the book. And so I'm going to start with chapter one, which is called The Beginnings. And we'll see where this takes us. You do an awfully good impression of yourself. This is the first line of Lunar Park, and in its brevity and simplicity, it was supposed to be a return to form, an echo of the opening line from my debut novel, Less Than Zero. People are afraid to merge on freeways in Los Angeles. Since then, the opening sentences of my novels, no matter how artfully composed, had become a overly complicated and ornate, loaded down with a heavy, useless emphasis on minutia. My second novel, The Rules of Attraction, for example, began with this, and it's a story that, you, that might bore you, but you don't have to listen, she told me, because she always knew it was going to be like that, and it was, she thinks, her first year, or actually weekend, really a Friday in September at Camden. I'm going to skip the rest of that paragraph. The following is from my third novel, American Psycho. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, is scrawled in blood-red lettering on the side of the chemical bank near the corner of 11th and 1st. This is from my fourth novel, Glamorama. Specs, specs, all over the third panel, see? No, that one. The Informers was a short story collection published between American Psycho and Glamorama, and since much of it was written while I was still in college before the publication of Less Than Zero, it was an example of the same stripped-down minimalism. What we're seeing here is Alice engaging with something metatextual. This book is being presented, first of all, from his perspective as the protagonist of a fictional novel who happens to also be the author of these other works, but also 
he's acknowledging the book that he's writing in context with his other writing. So how many levels of meta is that? It's very postmodern in scope. You know, when I think of the birth of postmodern writing, the first novel that comes to mind is Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, and then the logical extent of that, Erasure by Percival Everett. You'll also notice that I have no complaints about his prose style or anything. You know, I'm not sitting here being like, this is stupid. So I think this is making for a better podcast than Stephen King. As anyone who had closely followed the progression of my career with Glimpse and if fiction inadvertently reveals a writer's inner, inner life, things were getting out of hand, resembling something that, according to the New York Times, had become bizarrely complicated, bloated, and trivial, hyped up. And I didn't necessarily disagree. I wanted to return to that past simplicity. I was overwhelmed by my life, and those first sentences seemed reflections of what had gone wrong. It was time to get back to basics, and though I hoped that one lean sentence, you do an awfully good impression of yourself, would start the process, I also realized that it was going to require more than a string of words to clear away the clutter and damage that had amassed around me but it would be the beginning. When I was a student at Camden College in New Hampshire, I took a novel writing tutorial and produced during the winter of 1983 a manuscript that eventually became Less Than Zero. It detailed a wealthy, alienated, sexually ambiguous young man's Christmas break from an eastern college in Los Angeles, more specifically Beverly Hills, and all the parties he wandered through and all the drugs he consumed, and all the girls and boys he had sex with, and all the friends he passively watched drift into addiction, prostitution, and vast apathy. Days were spent speeding toward the beach club with beautiful blondes and gleaming convertibles while high on Nimbadol. I don't know what that is. Nights were lost in VIP rooms at trendy clubs and snorting cocaine at the window tables of Spago. It was an indictment, not only of a way of life I was familiar with, but also, I thought rather grandly, of the Reagan 80s, and more indirectly, of Western civilization in the present moment. My teacher was convinced as well, and after some casual edits and revisions, I had written it quickly in an eight-week crystal meth binge on the floor of my bedroom in L.A. He submitted it to his agent and publisher, who both agreed to take it on, the publisher somewhat reluctantly, one member of the editorial board arguing, if there's an audience for a novel about coke-snorting, cock-sucking zombies, then by all means, let's publish the damn thing. And I watched with a mixture of fear and fascination, laced with excitement, its transformation from a student assignment until a glossy hardcover, oh, glossy hardcover that became a bestseller and zeitgeist touchstone was translated into 25 languages and made into a big-budget Hollywood movie, all within the space of about 16 months. Okay, I'm going to stop here and talk a little bit about how this novel is not purely fiction, but also a lot of it is. Okay, so I'm not disputing that any of this actually happened, but I would think that... What he's describing here, like an eight-week crystal meth binge, I think that that 
might be a lie, <laughs> a, a, a mistruth, an untruth, if you will. And, you know, I don't doubt that someone said if there's an audience for a novel about coke snorting, cock, sucking, cock sucking zombies, I've cotton mouth or something. You know, I don't necessarily doubt that someone said that to him, but I don't necessarily believe that someone said that to him. And one of the little details about this that doesn't quite add up is he says it's a glossy hardcover, and I'm pretty sure that this novel was released solely as a paperback. I don't think that there are hardcovers out there. Let's, let's go to Google and find out. Was Less Than Zero published as a hardcover? Oh, I was wrong. There is a hardcover, and it says first printing. So I was wrong about that. So maybe I could have sworn... Okay, so I know that American Psycho was released only as a paperback, but I thought that Less Than Zero was also only published as a paperback. Let's see if Rules of Attraction... Let's see. Rules of Attraction hardcover. Going to Google... And there's also a hardcover of that. My father made the bulk of his money from highly speculative real estate deals, most of them during the Reagan years, and the freedom this money bought made him increasingly unstable. But my father had always been a problem. Careless, abusive, alcoholic, vain, angry, paranoid. And even after my parents' divorce when I was a teenager, my mother's demand, his power and control continued to loom over the family which also included two younger sisters, in ways that were all monetary, endless arguments between lawyers about alimony and child support. It was a mission of his, a crusade to weaken us, to make us intensely aware of how we, not his behavior, were to blame for the fact that he was no longer wanted in our lives. He left the house in Sherman Oaks under protest and moved to Newport Beach, and his rage continued to clash with our peaceful Southern California surroundings. The lazy days hanging by the pole, beneath a relentlessly clear and sunny sky. The mindless wanderings around the Galleria. The endless driving with swaying palm trees guiding us toward our destinations. The easygoing conversations over a soundtrack of Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles. All the laid-back advantages of growing up in that time and place were considerably darkened by his invisible presence. This languid lifestyle, decadent and loose, never relaxed my father. He remained always locked in a kind of demented fury, no matter how mellow the surface circumstances of his life really were. And because of this, the world was threatening to us in a vague an abstract way we couldn't work ourselves out of. The map had disappeared. The compass had been smashed. We were lost. My sisters and I discovered a dark side to life at an unusually early age. We learned from our father's behavior that the world lacked coherence and that within this chaos people were doomed to failure and these realizations clouded our every ambition. And so my father was the sole reason I fled to a college in New Hampshire rather than stay in L.A. with my girlfriend and enroll at USC, like most of my classmates from the private school we attended in San Fernando Valley suburbs ultimately did. That was my desperate plan. But it was too late. 
My father had blackened my perception of the world, and his sneering, sarcastic attitude toward everything had latched on to me. And much as I wanted to escape his influence, I couldn't. It had soaked into me, shaped me into the man I was becoming. As I'm reading this in my 30s, it makes sense why Brady Stanellis wrote the novels that he did when he did. And that may seem like a duh statement to you, obvious, but American Psycho is about himself. But in interviews in the 90s and early thousands, he said, oh, it's about my father, in a sense. But really, it was him grappling with adulthood, masculinity, etc. And here we have him finally acknowledging how much of an influence and inspiration his father was, for better or worse, on his life and his writing. And that's something that you don't always recognize in the first decade of your adulthood. You have to come to that realization in your 30s or 40s. And it might always be there. You might even say it out loud. Yes, my father or my mother or my grandparents or somebody in my life influenced and inspired the way that I write and what I write about. But you don't fully realize it until you get a little bit older. You know, every day I say or do something that reminds me of my mother. And the thing about my mother is that there were times where people would treat her as if she was being unreasonable. But what she was saying was the truth. But people don't care about the truth. They care about keeping order. They care about everyone getting along. Even if it means overlooking drastic flaws of other people. Now, I have to say, in some professional situations, I have not been afforded that courtesy. But I have been expected to afford others that courtesy. And it's draining. It's disheartening. And I hate participating in it. But I rarely, if ever, say anything negative about someone that I work with or in a classroom. I haven't been in a classroom in over a year, but still. It had soaked into me, shaped me into the man I was becoming. Whatever optimism I might have held on to had been swept away by the very nature of his being, the uselessness in thinking that escaping him physically would make a difference was so pathetic that I spent the first year at Camden paralyzed by anxiety and depression. The thing I resented most about my father was that the pain he inflicted on me, verbal and physical, was the reason I became a writer. Since he had no faith in my talent as a writer, my father demanded that I attended business school at USC. My grades were poor, but he had connections. Even though I wanted to enroll somewhere as geographically distant from him as possible, an art school, I kept stressing over his roar that offered no business courses. I found none in Maine, so I chose Camden, a small liberal arts college nestled in the hills of northern, (laughs) northeastern New Hampshire. Sorry, I got, I, I need to start skipping words that I can't pronounce 
and you might think that, oh, Patrick's a dumbass. He keeps saying or But how often do you run into the word bucolic, if that's even how you pronounce it? My father, typically enraged, refused to pay the tuition. However, my grandfather, who at the time was being sued by his son over money, so circuitous and complicated that I'm still not sure how or why I began, footed the bill. I'm fairly certain the reason my grandfather paid the outrageously expensive tuition had to do with the fact that it would upset my father greatly, which it did. When I started attending Camden in the fall of 1982, my father and I stopped speaking, which for me was a relief. This mutual silence prevailed until Lesson Zero was published and became a success. His negative, disapproving attitude about me then metamorphosized by the popularity of the novel into a curiously glowing acceptance that intensified my loathing for him even more. My father created me, criticized me, destroyed me, and then after I reinvented myself and lurched back into being, became a proud, boastful dad who attempted to re-enter my life, all within what seemed to be a matter of days. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, this is so common in real life. It is very common in real life. And it's kind of... I bet you that's exactly what Brady Sinellis' father wanted. Not for him to be a successful author, no. But he wanted Brett to become his own man and be able to put food on his own table. We all need help in doing that, people. There's nothing wrong with Brady Sinellis' grandfather helping him with college. Every person should have a period of time where they find themselves and figure things out. I'm in my 30s. I have two degrees, and I'm still figuring myself out. But the thing about Brett is that he found success very, very early on. Right place, right time. That's how it is for everybody. Lesson Zero is my favorite novel. I'm glad that he got it published when he got it published. It would make more sense for me to be reading a novel from 85 than it would be from 2005 with that same content. The novel was mistaken for autobiography. I had written three autobiographical novels, all unpublished before Less Than Zero, so it was more fiction-based and less a Roman Clef than the first novels. And its sensational scenes, the snuff film, the gang rape of a 12-year-old, the the decomposing corpse in the alley, the murder at the drive-in, were taken from lurid rumors that whispered through the group I hung out with in L.A., and not from anything experienced directly. But the press became extremely preoccupied with the book's shocking content, and especially with its style, very brief scenes written in a kind of controlled cinematic haiku. The book was short and an easy read. You could consume this piece of black candy, New York Magazine, in a couple of hours. And because of its large type, it became known as the novel for the MTV generation. And I found myself being labeled by just about everyone as the voice of this new generation. The fact that I was only 21 and there were no other voices yet, seemed not to matter. 
that was a sexy story. And no one was interested in pointing out the paucity of other leaders. I probably mispronounced that word too. Paucity. No, I didn't go back and edit what I said. Don't accuse me of anything, you bitch. Besides being profiled in every magazine and newspaper that existed, I was interviewed on the Today Show for a record 12 minutes on Good Morning America by Barbara Walters, by Oprah Winfrey. Winfrey, for God's sakes, Patrick. I appeared on Letterman. William F. Buckley and I had a very lively conversation on Firing Line. For an entire week, I introduced videos on MTV. I don't know that... A lot of this happened. Again, I could be wrong. I was wrong about the hardcover for Lesson Zero, but I have seen some footage of Brady Stanellis from this time period. I've never seen him being interviewed by Barbara Walters. I've never seen him on Good Morning America. America. I'm not from Canada. And I've never seen him interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. But him introducing videos on MTV actually seems more realistic to me, and it may not have happened. So I'm not going to Google everything. I'm not going to fact check this whole novel. So if you want to fact check it, be my guest. Back at Camden, I was engaged briefly to four different girls who hadn't seemed particularly interested before the book was published. Again, I don't think that that claim is very accurate. At the graduation party my father threw for me. At the Carlisle, the attendees included Madonna, Andy Warhol with Keith Haring, John Michael Basquiat, Molly Ringwald, John McEnroe, Ronald Reagan Jr., John John Kennedy, the entire cast of St. Elmo's Fire, various VJs and members of my massive fan club, which five Vassar seniors had started with a film crew from 2020 covering the event. I don't think that this actually happened. Also attending was Jay McErney, who had recently published a a similar first novel, Bright Lights, Big City, about young people and drugs in New York that made him an overnight sensation and my closest East Coast rival. One critic pointed out in one of the many articles comparing the two novels that if you substituted the word chocolate for cocaine, both Lesson Zero and Bright Lights, Big City would be considered children's books. And because we were photographed together so often, people began to mix the two of us up. To simplify things, the New York press simply referred to us as the Toxic Twins. After graduating from Camden, I moved to New York and bought a condo in the same building as both Cher and Tom Cruise, a block from Union Square Park. And as the real world continued to melt away, I became a founding member of something called the Literary Brat Pack. All right. I'm not going to stop and say, oh, this is inaccurate, that's inaccurate. We're just going to go with the novel and assume that a lot, a lot of it's fiction, okay? So, dear listener, do not assume that everything that comes out of my mouth that I'm reading from this book is true. Thank you. The Brat Pack was essentially a media-made package, all fake flash and punk and menace. It consisted of a small, trendy group of successful writers and editors, all under 30, who simply hung out together at night, either at Nels or Tunnel or MK or O'Bar. And the New York, as well as the national and international press, became entranced. Why? Well, according to Le Monde, American fiction had never been this young and sexy. 
an updated an updating of the movie star Rat Pack from the late 1950s. It consisted of me, Frank Sinatra, the editor who discovered me, Morgan Entrican, and the Dean Martin role, the editor who discovered Jay, Gary Fistic... We're not going to even try and pronounce that last name. Hepcat Random House editor Errol McDonald, Sammy Javis Jr., and McErnie, the group's Jerry Lewis. We also we even had our own Shirley MacLaine in the guise of Tama Janowitz, who had written a collection of short stories about cute, drug addled hipsters trapped in Manhattan that stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for what seemed like months. I'm going to chime in here and say that I have never read Slaves of New York, uh, but according to Wikipedia, the book was a hit and we quickly became a bestseller. Janowitz became an overnight media sensation, appearing on the cover of New York Magazine, making guest appearances on MTV and Late Night with David Letterman, and being feature- featured in an advertising campaign for Amaretto. However, according to Janowitz and her 2016 memoir, Scream, the book on its own did not earn her a significant amount of money. If you, There was also a movie made of it. But if you go to Google and you just Google Tama Janowitz and Brady Sinalis, you will see a picture of her, Jay McErnie, and I'm probably mispronouncing his last name, and I don't give a fuck, um, and Brett, and there are even two pictures of them together at some party, and then there's a picture of her and Andy Warhol. Big deal, right? According to Wikipedia, though, um, there are no editors that are included in the list of the Brat Pack. Now, I'm not trying to, again, fact check Ellis, but per Wikipedia, the literary Brat Pack includes Brady Sinellis, Tama Jamowitz, Jay McIrney, and Jill Eisenstad. And if you're curious about Jill, her Wikipedia page is all of one sentence long. And (laughs) I'm kind of exaggerating. But um, she only has three works listed on her Wikipedia page. So uh, her first novel from Rockaway, published by Knopf in 1987, was submitted as her MFA thesis while at Columbia University. So she's one of those authors. Just as an aside, I've been listening to not exclusive, well, not extensively, I should say, but there's this Genesis podcast called Tabletop Genesis, and they actually read the Wikipedia pages for each Genesis album before they start talking about it. It's almost like a rebuttal to the Wikipedia page, not in terms of facts, but in terms of how much it means to them, etc. But... You know, for instance, I listened to the episode on Duke, which is a big deal if you're a fan of Brady Sinellis. And they commented on how short that Wikipedia entry is in comparison to how important that, that album is. But uh, moving on. And I was on display. Everything I did was written about. The paparazzi followed me constantly. A spilled drink in Nell suggested drunkenness in a page six item in the New York Post. Dining at Canal Bar with Judd Nelson and Robert Downey Jr., who co-starred in the moody adaptation of Lesson Zero, suggested bad behavior. True, but still. 
An innocuous script meeting with Ali Sheedy over lunch at Paleo was construed as a sexual relationship. But I had put myself out there. I hadn't hidden. So what did I expect? I was doing Ray-Ban ads at 22. I was posing for the covers of English magazines on a tennis court, on a throne, on the deck of my condo in a purple robe. I threw lavish catering parties, sometimes complete with strippers, and my condo on a whim. Because it's Thursday, one invitation read. I crushed a borrowed Ferrari in Southampton, and its owner just smiled. For some reason, I was naked. I attended three fairly exclusive orgies. I did guest spots as myself on Family Ties, The Facts of Life, and Melrose Place, and Beverly Hills 90210, and Central Park West. I dined at the White House in the summer of 1986, the guest of Jeb and George W. Bush, both of whom were fans. (laughs) And I preemptively apologize, but I just had to pull up the IMDb page for Brody Sinellis. So the first TV credit for Brody Sinellis is in 1985 for a TV series called Firing Line. And then we have a gap of several years until 1991 on Manhattan Cable when he appeared as the author of American Psycho. And then in 1994, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, and then Lauren Hutton in 1995, the only television series that is a fictional TV series that I see where he appears as himself is CPW. Now, to be fair, I can look at actor, and under actor, the first credit for Brady Sinellis is in 2010 for All That Glitters. Skipping along here, the two main events during the next phase of my life were the hurried publication of a second novel, The Rules of Attraction, and my affair with actress Jane Dennis. All right, so (laughs) Jane Dennis is not a real actress, for one thing, okay? Also, despite the fact that, yes, Brady Stanellis dated women in the 80s. There's no disputing that. He identifies as a gay man. Okay, now, in this novel, he's married to a woman. However, in real life, he's never been married to a woman. I'm just letting you know. And by the way, I love the Rules of Attraction. If you haven't listened to the series that I did on Rules of Attraction, go listen to it. The Rules of Attraction was written during my senior year at Camden, and detail the sex lives of a small group of wealthy, alienated, sexually ambiguous students at a small New England liberal arts college. So like Candom itself, this is what I call the fictional university. During the new height of the Reagan 80s, we followed them as we wandered from orgiastic party to orgiastic party from one stranger's bed to another, and the text cataloged, cataloged all the drugs devoured, All the alcohol guzzled and how easily they drifted into abortions and vast apathy and skipping classes. And it was supposed to be an indictment of, well, really nothing. But at that point in my career, I could have submitted the notes I had taken in my junior year Virginia Woolf course and would have still received the huge advance and copious amounts of publicity. All right. So I want to comment on his own critique 
of rules of attraction. So uh, I will say that from the moment I read rules of attraction, I've always understood it to be a satire, much in the, the vein of lesson zero of the hedonistic college lifestyle that many people still lead today. It's part of the attraction of leaving home to go to school is to engage in these sorts of activities. Honestly, the thing about this podcast is that I feel like I've gotten better at doing it. So sometimes I think about having a Patreon, not for the sake of making money, but to have special content for those of you who are regular listeners. And I would really love to revisit those first three Brady Ellis novels because they mean a lot to me for one thing, but also I probably have more to say about them and I'd like to read more of them with you, but I don't know if that's in the cards. Uh, if I was going to do that, I'd probably just do it on here and you know, with respect to the original episodes. The book was also a bestseller, though not as successful as Lesson Zero, and the press became even more fascinated with me and by the decadence portrayed in the book and how it seemed to mirror my public lifestyle as well as the decade we were all trapped in. The book cemented my authority as the spokesman for this generation, and my fame grew in direction, in direct proportion to the number of copies the book sold. It all kept coming. The cases of champagne consumed. The suits Armani sent over. The cocktails in first class. The charting on various power lists. The court seats at Lakers games. The shopping after hours at Barney's. The groupies. The paternity suits. The <laughs> restraining orders against determined fans. The first million. The second million. The third million. I was going to start my own line of furniture. I was going to have my own production company. And the spotlight's white glare kept intensifying, especially when I started dating Jane Dennis. Jane Dennis was a young model who had seamlessly made the transition to serious actress and had been steadily gaining recognition for her roles in a number of A-list projects. Our paths had crossed at various celebrity functions, and she had always been extremely flirtatious, but since everyone was flirting with me at that point in my life, her interest barely registered until she arrived at a Christmas party I threw in 1988 and basically hurled herself at me. I was that irresistible. At the after party at Nell's, I found myself making out with her in one of the club's front booths and then whisked her back to my suite at the Carlisle. It took the caterers two days to decorate the condo and three days to clean it up. There were 500 guests, so I moved into a hotel the week of that party. Where we had sex all night, and then I had a plane to catch the next morning to L.A. for the holidays. When I returned to New York, we officially became a high-profile couple. We could be seen at an Elton John's AIDS benefit concert at Madison Square Garden. We were photographed at a Hamptons polo match. We were interviewed by Entertainment Tonight on the red carpet at the Ziegfeld premiere of the new Eddie Murphy comedy. We sat in the front row at the Versace fashion show. Paparazzi followed us to a friend's villa in Nice. 
Though Jane had fallen in love with me and wanted to get married, I was simply too preoccupied with myself and felt the relationship, if it kept running its course, would be doomed by summer. Besides her neediness and self-loathing, there were other insurmountable obstacles, namely drugs, to a lesser extent massive alcohol consumption. There were other girls, there were other boys. There was always another party to get lost in. Jane and I broke up amiably in May of 1989 and kept in touch in a sad, funny sort of way. There was a continuous wistfulness on her part and a high level of sexual interest on mine. But I needed my space. I needed to be alone. A woman wasn't going to interfere with my creativity. I had started a new novel that was beginning to demand most of my time. What's left to say about American Psycho that hasn't already been said? And I feel no need to go into great detail about it here. For those who weren't in the room at the time, here's the Cliff's Notes version. I wrote a novel about a young, wealthy, alienated Wall Street yuppie named Patrick Bateman who happened to be a serial killer filled with vast apathy during the height of the Reagan 80s. The novel was pornographic and extremely violent, so much so that my publishers, Simon & Schuster, refused the book on grounds of taste, forfeiting a mid-six-figure advance. Sonny Meta, the head of Knopf, snapped up the rights, and even before its publication, the controversy and scandal the novel achieved were enormous. I did no press because it was pointless. My voice would have been drowned out by all the indignant wailing. The book was accused of introducing serial killer Chic to the nation. It was reviewed in the New York Times three months before publication under the headline, Don't Buy This Book. It was the subject of a 10,000-word essay by Norman Mailer in Vanity Fair. It was the object of scornful editorials. There were debates on CNN. There was a feminist boycott by the National Organization of Women and the obligatory death threats. P.N. and the Authors Guild refused to come to my rescue. I was vilified even though the book sold millions of copies and raised the fame quotient so high that my name became as recognizable as most movie stars or athletes. I was taken seriously. I was a joke. I was avant-garde. I was a traditionalist. I was underrated. I was overrated. I was innocent. I was partly guilty. I had orchestrated the controversy. I was incapable of orchestrating anything. I was considered the most misogynistic American writer in existence. I was a victim of the burgeoning culture of the politically correct. The debates raged on and on, and not even the Gulf War in the spring of 1991 could distract the public sphere and worry and fascination from Patrick Bateman and his twisted life. I made more money than I knew what to do with. It was the year of being hated. Here's the thing. I grew up in the rural south, about an hour outside of Atlanta, and my mother was an avid reader, still is an avid reader, but during this time period, you know, she had her bachelor's in English, and when American Psycho came out, she may have been a little distracted by me coming out of her, but I don't think she even knew who Brady Stanellis was. I don't think that a lot of people knew who Brett Easton Ellis was or is. 
the thing is, is that even though, yes, obviously his books sold a lot, um, not nearly as much as he may be letting on here, but still a lot. The populations of New York and Los Angeles are much bigger than Georgia. If you combine Los Angeles and New York, I believe the population would be greater than ours. Do I need to fact check that for you? So it might be that in these huge metropolitan areas, if you can call them that, yes, Brady Sinellis was popular. He may have even been popular in Seattle and D.C. and other major cities. But I hadn't heard of him until I watched American Psycho on VHS in the 2000s. And I have previously mentioned on this podcast that for a while, I was trying to find, find out if American Psycho had even been wide released. And by that, I mean, was it ever in my hometown? <laughs> and I found out that in Georgia, it only played in one theater for a few days. So it, it wasn't a hugely popular movie when it came out. Now, if I could go back in time to that mall movie theater in Atlanta and watch American Psycho on the big screen for the first time, I totally would. That would mean so much to me. What I didn't and couldn't tell anyone was that writing the book had been an extremely disturbing experience. That even though I had planned to base Patrick Bateman on my father, someone, something else took over and caused this new character to be my only reference point during the three years it took to complete the novel. What I didn't tell anyone was that the book was written mostly at night when the spirit of this madman would visit, sometimes waking me from a deep Xanak and induced sleep. When I realized, to my horror, what this character wanted from me, I kept resisting, but the novel forced itself to be written. I would often black out for hours at a time, only to realize that another ten pages had been scrawled out. My point, and I'm not quite sure how else to put this, is that the book wanted to be written by someone else. It wrote itself. It didn't care how I felt about it. I would fearfully watch my hand as the pen swept across the yellow legal pads I did the first draft on. I was repulsed by this creation and wanted to take no credit for it. Patrick Bateman wanted the credit. And once the book was published, it almost seemed as if he was relieved and more disgustingly satisfied. He stopped appearing after midnight, gleefully haunting my dreams, and I could finally relax and quit bracing myself for his nocturnal arrivals. But even years later, I couldn't look at the book, let alone touch it or reread it. There was something evil about it. My father never said anything to me about American Psycho. Though oddly enough, after reading half of it that spring, he sent my mother a copy of Newsweek with the cover that asked over the angelic face of a baby, Is your child gay? Unaccompanied by any kind of note or explanation. <laughs> so we're mixing in a little horror and a little comedy here. <laughs> I've said it before. Uh, Brett Easton Ellis has stated in several interviews, I believe, that uh, 
Patrick Bateman is obviously a closeted gay man. The death of my father occurred in August of 1992, at the time I was doing the Hamptons in a 20000 a month cottage on the beach in Wainscott, where I was trying to work through my writer's block while preparing for weekend guest, ordering the $40 plum tart from the specialty bakery in East Hampton, and picking up two cases of Domont Alt. I was trying to stay sober, but I'd started opening bottles of Chardonnay at 10 in the morning, and if I'd drunk everything on the night before, I would sit in the Porsche at least for the summer in a Bridgehampton parking lot waiting for the liquor store to open, usually sharing a cigarette with Peter Moss, who was waiting there too. Um, I bet when I first read this novel that I thought $20,000 a month seemed like a lot, but in my 30s, um, if someone told me that they were renting a cottage for $20,000 a month, I would assume that they were a crazed billionaire. Anyway, uh, also the the liquor store thing, uh, just a funny aside, um, this was in the early 2010s. My mother and I were driving through Cedar Town, and there is a liquor store that is attached to a gas station, and I think the liquor store is called Cheers. It's a very common name for liquor stores around here, it seems, but I was just going to go inside the gas station to get something to drink, and there was... An older gentleman standing outside, and he says, it doesn't open for another 30 minutes. And I was like, what? The gas station isn't open? He's like, oh no, the liquor store. (laughs) And then the summer was interrupted by a phone call at the middle of the night. He was found naked by the 22-year-old girlfriend on the bathroom floor of his empty house in Newport Beach. That was all we knew. I had no idea what to do, who to call, how to cope. I collapsed into shock. Someone had to remove me from that cottage and get me back to California. There was eventually only one person who could do all this for me, or more, pointedly, would. So Jane left the set of a movie in Pennsylvania she was co-starring in with Keanu Reeves and made plane reservations on MGM Grand and dragged my shivering hulk out of the Hamptons and flew to L.A. with me, all within 20 hours of hearing about my father's death. And that night, at the house in Sherman Oaks that I grew up in, drunk and terrified, I brutally made love to her in my childhood room while we both wept. That's kind of disgusting. Jane returned the next day to the set in Pennsylvania. Keanu sent me flowers. (laughs) My father had made me trustee of his estate, which was worthless. And he also owed millions in back taxes, so there was a protracted legal battle with the IRS. I think that's actually real. The autopsy revealed that he had suffered a massive stroke at 2.40 a.m. through the coroner, though the coroner was mystified by certain irregularities, Patrick. This is not an audiobook podcast. I am not a professional. No one wanted to pursue these irregularities, and he was cremated Im- immediately. 
His ashes were put into a bag, even though his will stated that he wanted his children to spread them at sea off the coast of Cabo San Lucas, where he vacationed frequently. And we stored the ashes in a safety deposit box in Bank of America. When I brought some of the Amani suits to a tailor to be altered, I was revolted to discover that most of the inseams in the crotch of the trousers were stained with blood, which we later found out was the result of a botched penile implant he underwent in Minneapolis. My father, in his last years, due to the toxic mix of diabetes and alcoholism, had become impotent. I... I loved the suits with the tailor and drove back to Sherman Oaks in tears, screaming while punching the roof of the Mercedes as I swerved recklessly through the canyons. <laughs> and when I returned to New York, I was told by Jane that she was pregnant and that she intended to keep the child and that I was the father. I begged her to have an abortion. Children had voices. They wanted to explain themselves. They wanted to tell you everything, where everything was. And I could easily do without witnessing those special skills. I had already seen what I wanted, and it did not involve children. Like all single men, and the first priority was my career. I had a fancy fantasy bachelor's life and wanted to keep it. I raged at Jane, confronted her with entrapment, insisted it wasn't mine. But she said she expected as much from me and had the child prematurely the following March at Cedar Sinai in L.A., where she was now living. I saw the child once during its first year. Jane brought him over to the condo on 13th Street in a pathetic attempt at bonding when she was in town for the premiere of the movie she had made with Keanu Reeves the previous summer. She had named him Robert. Robbie. Again, I raged at her and insisted the child wasn't mine. She asked, then who the hell do you think the father is? I immediately made a connection and pounced on her. Keanu Reeves, I shouted. Keanu had been a friend of mine when he was initially cast in Less Than Zero, but he was replaced by Andrew McCarthy when the studio producing the movie, 20th Century Fox, scored a hit in the summer of 87 with Mannequin, a low-budget sleeper which starred McCarthy and was produced, ironically, by the father of the girl the character Blair, the heroine of Lesson Zero, was based on. My world was that small. I threatened to sue Jane if she asked for child support. Since I refused to participate in any testing, she hired a lawyer. I hired a lawyer. Her lawyer argued that the child bears a striking resemblance to Mr. Ellis, while my lawyer countered reluctantly at my urgent said child bears a striking resemblance to a certain Mr. Keanu Reeves. Test I was legally obligated to undergo proved that I was the father, but I claimed that Jane had misrepresented the facts when she said she was using contraception. Miss Dennis and Mr. Ellis were in a non-exclusive relationship, my lawyer argued. Regardless of Mr. Ellis being the father, it is her choice to be a single mother. I learned in cases such as these that ejaculation was legal point of no return. But one morning after a particularly acrimonious phone call between my lawyer and Jane's, Marty hung up the phone stunned and looked at me. Jane had given up. She no longer expected any child support and promptly dropped her lawsuit. It was at that moment in my lawyer's office at one 
World Trade Center that I realized she had named the child after my father. But when I confronted her about it later that day, after we had tentatively forgiven each other, she swore it had never occurred to her, which I still do not believe, and which I am certain is the reason that the following events in Lunar Park happened. It was the catalyst. What else? Her parents hated me. Even after it was proven that I was the father, Jane's last name remained on the birth certificate. I started wearing Hawaiian shirts and smoking cigars. Jane had another child five years later, a girl named Sarah. And again, the relationship with the father did not work out. I knew the guy vaguely, a famous music executive in L.A. He was a nice guy. In the end, Jane seemed practical and maternal and stable. We amiably kept in touch. She was still in love with me. I moved on. Jane always demanded Robbie's name not be connected with mine in any way of the press I did. And of course I agreed. But in August of 1994, when Vanity Fair assigned a profile to run when Knopf published The Informers, that collection of short stories I had written when still at Camden, the reporter suggested who Robbie's father might be and in his first draft, which ICM suspiciously got a peek of, cited a reliable source as saying that Brett Easton Ellis was in fact Robbie's dad. I relayed this information to Jane, who called my agent Binky Urban and the head of Knopf to demand that this fact be excised. excised. And Graydon Carter, the editor of Vanity Fair, and also a friend, agreed to cut it, much to the chagrin of the reporter who had endured a week with me in Richmond, Virginia, where I supposedly was hiding out at a friend's house. Actually, I was secretly attending the Canyon Ranch that had recently opened there to get in shape for the brief book tour I'd promoted, I promised to do for Knopf to support the informers. That information never made it into the article either. What's interesting about this book is that he's writing it about 10 years after American Psycho, and we still have those Brett Easton Ellisisms in here where he name drops celebrities and goes into great detail about things. I'm skipping ahead to on heroin. I thought everything I did was innocent and full of love, and I had a yearning to bond with humanity, and I was relaxed and serene and focused, and I was frank and I was caring, and I signed so many autographs and made so many new friends who dwindled away, who didn't make it. At the time, I discovered dope, I also started the decade-long process, the 90s, of outlining, writing, and promoting a 500-page novel called Glamorama about an international terrorist ring using the fashion world as a cover. By the way, if that plot sounds familiar to you, it is the plot of Zoolander. And yes, he sued the production of Zoolander. Either I don't know if he sued the writer or just the entire production company, but there was a lawsuit and a settlement because they stole the plot of his novel, essentially. I was exhausted by the nonstop barrage of press, and after the premiere of the movie version of American Psycho, which is what the 16th-month Glamorama World Tour was headed for, what it was culminating toward, I realized that if I wanted to live again, i.e. not die, I had to flee New York. I was that burned out. A week-long coke and heroin binge began in the limo during the drive to the premiere at the Sony Theater on Broadway in 68th and continued into the long night of parties that started 
at the Cerruti store on Madison, moved downtown to Pop, then danced itself to Spa, and then dragged itself into my condo on 13th Street, where the cast members and their various agents and PR reps and DJs and other notable members of Young Hollywood boogied until the building superintendent arrived the following morning and demanded I kick everyone out due to the intolerable noise level, even though high and reeking of vodka and bass, I tried bribing him with a roll of hundreds. After that, I lie alone in bed for the next seven days watching porn DVDs with the sound off and storting maybe 40 bags of heroin, a blue plastic bucket that I vomited into continuing by my side, and telling myself that the lack of respect from the critical community was what hurt so much and why I had drug myself away from the pain. I just lay back and kept waiting for the tawdry end of the incendiary career. Those of you who love Brady Sinellis' writing style like I do, that's classic Brady Sinellis, but also I'm going to skip a lot. I'm going to read the last page of this chapter because it's about 40 pages and we can't get through all of it. All of it. I've recounted the incidents in sequential order. Lunar Park follows these events in a fairly straightforward manner, and though this is ostensibly... A true story. No research was involved in the writing of this book. For example, I did not consult the autopsy reports concerning the murders that occurred during this period because, in my own way, I had committed them. I was responsible and knew what, I had, what had happened to the victims without referring to a coroner. There are also people who dispute the horror of the events that took place that autumn on Ellisnor Lane. And when the book was vetted by the legal team at Knopf, my ex-wife was among those who protested, as did, oddly enough, my mother, who was not present during those frightful weeks. The files of the FBI kept on me beginning in November of 1990 during the pre-publication controversy surrounding American Psycho and maintained ever since. Would have clarified things, but they have not been released and I'm barred from quoting them. And the few witnesses who could corroborate these events have disappeared. For example, Robert Miller, the paranormal investigator I hired, simply vanished, and the website where I first contacted him no longer exists. My psychiatrist at the time, Dr. Janet Kemp, offered the suggestion that I was not myself during this period, and has hinted that perhaps drugs and alcohol were key factors in what was a delusional state. Names have been changed and I'm semi-vague about the setting itself because it doesn't matter. It's a place like any other. Retelling the story has taught me that Lunar Park could have happened anywhere. These events were inevitable and would have occurred no matter where I was at that particular moment in my life. The title Lunar Park is not intended as a take on Luna Park, as it mistakenly appears on the initial Knopf contracts. The title means something only to my son. These are the last two words of this book. And by then, I hope they will be self-explanatory to the reader as well. Regardless of how horrible the events described here might seem, there's one thing you must remember as you hold this book in your hands. All of it really happened. Every word is true. The thing that haunted me the most, since no one knew what was happening in that house, no one was scared for us, and now it's time to go back into the past. A little bit of irony to that last line because this entire chapter has been a reconstruction, an exaggeration of the past. 
what I love about Ellis's writing is his voice. He's one of those authors that you can hear his voice as you read it. And it's a voice that very much appeals to me. And I love his details of the decadence and excess. Even though a lot of it doesn't happen, a lot of it did happen. Now, what happens after this point in the novel is all fiction. It just happens to have his name as the protagonist. I look forward to reading more of this novel in the coming weeks. I haven't done a novel series in quite a hot minute. So this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing.